0: There are crimes of passion and crimes for financial benefit, but affordably Frank McDowell's 1924 Jailhouse Confession, he didn't murder his entire family for either, but instead as a penance to God for childhood blasphemy. His reasoning feels suspect though, especially considering the nineteen year old also proclaimed himself to be an atheist. I'm Jeff Billington, and this is Crimes We Forgot, an independent podcast that explores intriguing crimes of a century ago. That have all but vanished from history. For this episode, I've dug into newspaper archives and public records to discover the full story of Frank McDowell, a young man who is called both brilliant and lazy by those who knew him, and who through two brutal acts, separated by almost exactly one year, killed his two younger sisters and his parents. In early 1923, Jonna and Rosa McDowell, along with their teenage daughters, Willie Matty and Marion, and their 18-year-old son, Frank, lived in a white, wood frame house on Ponce de Leon Avenue in Decatur, Georgia, less than a block away from the DeKalb County Courthouse. John was the owner and editor of the DeKalb New Era newspaper, while Rosa took care of the children in the home. The two daughters were students at Decatur High School, with Marion due to graduate in June, having received a scholarship to attend Agnes Scott College there in the same town. Frank had finished high school early at the age of 16. He then attended Emory University in Atlanta and then transferred to George Washington University in Washington, D.C., but he ended up getting expelled from George Washington University on the grounds that he provided forged credentials related to his time at Emory. To outsiders, this family probably seemed normal. They would have been upper middle class at the time. But then shortly after 1 a.m. on Tuesday, February 20th, 1923, Neighbors spotted a fire in a bedroom window of the McDowell home. They would report they saw Marion and Willie May at that window, trying to get out before they disappeared back into the flames. Inside the house, Rosa and John were in their bed when they were alerted to the fire by the sound of the ceiling collapsing in the next room. John rushed from the room into the hallway where he found Frank and fire and smoke emanating from the door to his daughter's shared bedroom. Rosa followed after, watching as John and Frank tried to get the girls' bedroom door open, but it was either jammed or locked. Rosa would comment that she heard no cries coming from the girls who were trapped inside. One of the neighbors who spotted the fire was Irwin Trotty, who had just gotten off the trolley and was walking home. Seeing it was an emergency, he rushed inside the house to help, and with his help, John and Frank were able to break through the door and get inside the burning room. Trotty described the scene as looking like a lake of oil with flames playing about all over the floor. He even attempted to pick up one of the girls, who he found lying against the door to her parents' adjoining room, but the room burst into flames, forcing him out. By the time the fire department arrived, the house was fairly well engulfed. They managed to get the fire under control and eventually put out, and then they quickly determined that it had been set, using some sort of accelerant, and that based on where the girls' bodies were discovered, it seemed that they had tried to escape before finding the door locked. Both John and Rosa McDowell had injuries from the fire, his feet being blistered from his efforts to rescue the girls while she had suffered smoke inhalation and shock. Frank, though, managed to escape any type of injury. In fact, the day after the fire, Frank was active giving interviews to reporters about the details of it. He even went so far as to search the home's ruins looking for photographs of his sisters to share with them. He also told them he thought the fire had been accidental. Meanwhile, the bodies of his sisters were sent to the local undertaker, A.S. Turner, in preparation for transporting them to their hometown of Ackworth, Georgia, where they would be interred in Liberty Hill Cemetery. With the confirmation of arson, officials quickly went looking for a suspect. And they found that in the family's former cook, an African-American woman named Dimple Nix, who Rosa McDowell had fired shortly before the fire. Nix, along with her husband, her sister, and her husband's brother were all arrested. Of course, those arrests are a bit suspect, as Dimple Nix had been brought in first after being identified by the McDowells as a person of interest, and she underwent several hours of grilling and there's no mention of her having any type of attorney or anyone there to guide her, especially when you consider this being Georgia in the 1920s. Nix gave a confession, according to the authorities, where she said that her husband Johnny had said, that house burned last night and them two girls burned. i done my job well. The authorities claimed that this proved that Nix did it in revenge after she was fired. Both Johnny Nix and his brother, though, They denied being involved and said they could account for their whereabouts on the night of the fire. The Nixes were taken to the DeKalb County Jail, but they were quickly transferred out of that jail and sent to Atlanta for safekeeping. This proved to be life-saving for the Nixes, as a lynch mob ended up gathering at the DeKalb Jail, demanding they be turned over. All the accusations against the Nixes proved to go nowhere, though. In March 1923, the DeKalb County Grand Jury decided against indicting Dimple Nix or her family, and they were all released from jail and the warrant against them dismissed. Following the devastating fire and the loss of their daughters, John McDowell sold the DeKalb New Era newspaper, and he and what remained of his family moved to St. Petersburg, Florida. Frank, who later reports stated had also been an interest in the fire, escaped any serious questioning, as his mother shielded him from the authorities and demanded she be present for any questioning of him. That protection of her son, unfortunately, may well have sealed the fate for Rosa and John. That's because, on February 21, 1924, a year and a day after their daughters died in a fiery bedroom, two gunshots fired at close range ended the lives of John and Rosa as they slept in their bedroom in a small bungalow house on 27th Avenue in St. Petersburg. Rosa McDowell's mother, an elderly deaf woman, was also sleeping in the house, but was undisturbed by the gunshots. Frank came running out of the house, screaming that his parents had been killed and the assailant had knocked him unconscious, showing a bruise and a bump on his head as proof. The police arrived, and as they investigated the scene of the murder, they found a heart-shaped note on the bed to slain McDowell's. It read, And now in the mouth of the father of the house of Satan do I offer up this prayer of mine. Heavenly Father, writ on the likeness of mine heart, destined to the blackness of sin, that it shall be washed away in the blood of the Lamb as it gushes from the body of thine slain enemy. And it is the end of the second year of sin with me, and the end of, my, of mine sin before thee. And likewise in the watery sepulture of the son of the house of Antichrist shall I mingle this prayer of the Son of God, writ upon the likeness of a dove which arising from the cleansing waters of baptism shall light upon me, bearing forgiveness of Jesus. And it shall be the end of the third year of sin in me, and the end of mine sin before God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. It was a rambling, disjointed note. Uh, Seeming to, to point blame to a religious fanatic, it made the police suspicious, so they quickly searched the house, and there they found, in the bottom of a trunk, the murder weapon, a 32 caliber pistol. They took that and the note and confronted Frank, quickly getting him to admit killing his parents, which he then followed up by confessing to starting the fire that had burned his sisters to death. Frank told the police he had not intended to kill his parents when he had gone to bed in the room adjoining them earlier that night, but in a dream he heard a voice that commanded he kill them. So he woke up, took the gun, went to their room, held it close to their heads, and fired. And, he said, after the violent deed had been completed, his mind was clear, so he hid the pistol, bumped his head to create an injury, and slipped the screen in the storm door, to make it look like forced entry. He then ran from the house to report the murder and to share that he had been attacked by the killer. He also gave more information on the killing of his sisters. He shared that he had siphoned gas from his parents' car and used that to soak his sister's bed in the floor. He then took a shovel of coals from the fireplace and tossed it on, though he did deny having locked or jammed the door. Frank also said that his murder spree was not yet complete, as he planned another victim, one Mary Birdsey, who was away attending college at the time. As a small child, she had gone to school with Frank, but according to her family, had not seen him in years. Frank, of course, went to jail, and while he was there, his parents' bodies were returned to Decatur, Georgia, for their funeral at the First Baptist Church. They were then taken to Ackworth, and buried near their daughters in Liberty Hill Cemetery. Frank almost seemed to revel in his time in jail, granting long interviews to reporters and sharing in detail about his crimes. Of course, those details also seemed to be lining up an insanity defense. He declared himself the world's first Superman, and that the killings of his sister's parents, as well as planned killing of Mary Birdsey, was to remove the hurdles that stood in his way of becoming a one-person world power. His ambition, he added, was to make the world perfect and to be the president of a perfect world. He evidently broke down during one of the interviews, complaining that his life was ruined and he was a failure when he should have accomplished so much, the sign of a a much overcompensated ego, if you ask me. But then why did he do the murders? What, What were these hurdles that he was overcoming by doing that? He shared they were in response to when he was 10 years old and had blasphemed against God when he discovered his freshly laundered shirt was missing its buttons, and that he did that blasphemy in front of one Mary Birdsey. He said that blasphemy was an unpardonable sin, which made it necessary for him to atone for it by killing his family so he could become that Superman. In fact, he said it was the Holy Ghost itself that came to him in the form of a white rabbit and told him to kill those who followed the Antichrist, which was evidently his entire family. But despite the religious fanaticism in his explanation, he also said he was an atheist who was above religion. Or at least he said one of his dual personalities was. Unsurprisingly, there were plenty of folks at the time who weren't buying what seemed to be a public pitch for the insanity play. A determination that could save his life, as murder meant the electric chair, well, insanity only meant the asylum. Giving weight to it being something darker than insanity is the fact that Frank had gotten his father to take out a $5,000 life insurance policy only three weeks earlier, a policy that included a double indemnity clause in case of accidental death or murder. And with the rest of the family dead, that money would be coming directly to Frank. He was also set to inherit the money from the sale of his father's newspaper business and the site of the family's home in Decatur. It was estimated that altogether he would get around $17,000, which equates to more than $300,000 in 2024. W.J. Kelly, a grocer and close friend of Frank, said McDowell wanted to travel the world but constantly complained about a lack of money and he was trying to persuade Kelly to take off with him. Kelly added that Frank was also obsessed with going to New York City and being surrounded by the glittering lights of Broadway. With all of this in mind, prosecutors and the police believed the murders and his related actions were actually just tied to him trying to get money without having to work for. Noting he was a spendthrift who complained about his allowance and was jealous of anything that had been given to his sisters. His extended family pushed back, though, saying he was obviously insane. And the alienists of the time, those early form of a of, uh, criminal psychologist, claimed he was an egomaniac whose hallucination rendered him irresponsible for his act. With Frank's fate being debated in Florida, officials in Decatur, Georgia, were keeping an eye on the proceedings. Because if Frank wasn't going to be convicted for the murder of his parents, They hoped to bring him back to their state and try him for the murder of his sisters. By early June 1924, the trial was underway, with news reports giving an almost fawning description of Frank, describing him as having a round, soft face, sunny eyes of innocent blue, and crisp golden hair. Of course, the first trial quickly ended in a mistrial on June 11th. But a second trial was then also quickly underway, starting on June 18th. It ended up being a spectacle, especially for young women, who crowded the courtroom so much they were sitting in the window sills. The trial underway. Frank began to become unruly, interrupting the proceedings three times on June 20th alone, demanding the right to take the stand and tell about it. The judge finally gave in and allowed Frank to give his take on the events. During his testimony, he admitted to taking morphine when he would have panic attacks, which is what he blamed on having to leave Emory University. He also admitted to forging a doctor's signature to obtain morphine. His morphine use was actually tied into one of the theories about his parents' murder, namely that he had drugged them at dinner so they wouldn't wake up when he came in later to shoot them. Part of the thought on this is that neither of his parents appeared to have moved after one had been shot, and then the second one, when common thought would have it that if you're lying in bed, a gunshot goes off next to you, you would probably wake up and stir just a little bit, right? Throughout the trial, the insanity defense remained on the table, with Dr. W. H. Spires from the State Asylum in Chattahoochee testifying. He said Frank had something called Dimension Precox and would only live five or six years longer and in the last several, his mind would be a blank, and he would have to be dressed and undressed. With the arguments over, the jury only took a little over two hours to deliberate on the case, but in the end found Frank guilty, though they did make a recommendation of mercy. So on April 2nd, 1924, Frank was sent to the Rayford State Prison, though he ended up having a very short stay at the prison, because by November of that same year, He was declared insane and sent to the Chattahoochee Asylum. Then at Chattahoochee, he quickly achieved a degree of standing, being named an inmate trustee, which provided him special privileges most of the inmates of the asylum would not have had. One of the newspapers at the time this happened actually hinted that maybe this was just all part of his plan for an eventual escape. That newspaper proved to be prophetic as on October 13, 1930, Frank and another inmate named John Pruitt got a hold of a gun and forced a guard to let them escape. Pruitt ended up surrendering shortly after the escape, but Frank managed to evade recapture by taking off through a swamp. For several weeks, there was no sign of Frank, while a reward for his capture grew to $775, or around $14,000 in 2024 currency. Then, on October 31, 1930, an unconscious man was found on the U.S. 1 Coastal Highway, about 20 miles south of Savannah. He was the victim of a hit-and-run accident and was taken to the hospital in Savannah, where he remained in a semi-coma until he died on November 19, 1930. When he was found, he was wearing a shirt and shoes that matched those worn by inmates from the Chattahoochee Asylum. Staff from the asylum traveled to Savannah and tentatively identified the body as being that of Frank McDowell, and then fingerprints were used to confirm it. Frank's death, a little under eight years after he set his sister's bedroom ablaze, marked the end of the McDowell family. While it might seem odd to some, Frank's extended family must have felt some forgiveness for him, because they brought his body back to Ackworth, Georgia and buried it there in Liberty Hill Cemetery, near his parents and the sisters he murdered. Mary Birdsey, who some believed, and Frank even alluded to, as being the next target in his murderous plan, would graduate from Wellesley College in Massachusetts, and in 1929 married Yale graduate John Collier Hogg. She would die at the age of 91 in 1995, more than 70 years after the brutal killings. The Cook Dimple Nicks, who, along with her husband and other family members, was originally charged in the fire that killed the two McDowell girls, has proved elusive to track down. Despite her unique name, which may have only been a nickname, I've been unable to find out what happened to her or her husband Johnny in the years after the murders and their thankful escape from a lynch mob. Of the locations of Frank's crimes, the home where his sisters died is long gone replaced by a block of 1930s-era commercial buildings. But the house in St. Petersburg, where he killed his parents, though altered with a second story and rear addition, still stands. Its front facade remains recognizable to the crime scene photos published in newspapers from a century ago, but interestingly, real estate websites list the house as having been built in 1926, despite the fact that it was the site of a gruesome double murder two years earlier. The Florida State Hospital in Chattahoochee continues to operate, still housing patients who committed crimes or are considered a public risk due to psychological conditions. In the end, we're left to wonder what really drove Frank McDowell to murder his entire family. Was it some psychological issue? Some belief that he was the world's first Superman and that he had to sacrifice his entire family to achieve it? Or was it cold blooded familicide? First, the sisters over jealousy that they got too much of what he wanted, then, his parents hoping for a bigger payout. I won't lie, my inclination's to go with the latter, as looking through all the facts, it all seems a little too premeditated. So, in the end, I suppose karma or fate took care of Frank for the heinous crimes he committed removing his poisoned thinking from the world. Thank you for listening to this episode of Crimes We Forgot. It's an independent podcast, produced, edited, hosted, and researched by me, Jeff Billington. If you would like to support it, you can subscribe and not miss a future episode, or please consider rating it. That helps bring it to the attention of more listeners. To find out more about my podcast, or some of my other work, like my novels, Please visit www.jeffbillington.com. Again, thank you for listening.